Once again, good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to Calvary if you're new with us. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6? And if you are new, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we come to John chapter 6, and let's pick it up this morning, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. It had been a long, hard day of ministry. It had began early that morning with the disciples and the Lord leaving the area of Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee, getting into a boat and sailing the three or four miles to the north northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee where the city of Bethsaida was located. Remember now, they had, um, as we have been saying, uh, they, they did this. They went uh, from Capernaum where the crowds were all there. They went to the area of Bethsaida to find a secluded place because they, they, they just needed to spend some time by themselves and get some much-needed rest. As we have been saying, as we come to John 6, we are now entering the final year of Jesus' life before the cross. And as such, he is withdrawing more and more from public ministry to spend time alone with his Father in prayer, preparing himself for the crucifixion, and spending time alone with his disciples more and more, preparing them for the time he would be taken from them, and they would have to begin the ministry or pick up the ministry where he left off. Now, they had gone to the area of Bethsaida for some rest. That's not actually how it worked out. The crowd saw where they were going, and so they ran around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and were waiting there when Jesus and his disciples uh, landed on the shores of Bethsaida. And we learned 5,000 men plus women and children, many believe upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. Not a great way to start a vacation, uh, obviously. And um, you would think the Lord might have been a little irritated with the multitudes that, that they didn't respect his space as we would say uh, with him and his disciples because they needed some rest you'd think that but that was not the case with our lord no he and his disciples ministered to this great crowd all day and when it got late and the people had not eaten all day the disciples said to the lord you know lord you better send these folks away to the surrounding villages uh it's late and they need to eat uh, we don't have the money uh we don't we can't feed all these people and Jesus basically dropped a bombshell on them by saying, Matthew 14, verse 16, we don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. The Greek is emphatic. You, I say you do it. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, he then turned to Philip and said, You know, Philip, where should we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And verse 7, Philip answered him, well, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that 
everyone may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a lad here who has far, five barley biscuits or crackers, is what it is, a couple of small pickled fish like sardines. But, you know, what is that among so many people? Okay, uh, Lord, what could you possibly do with that little bit of food with regard to all these folks here? But as you we studied last time, Jesus took the bread and the fish and gave thanks to his Father and began to break it with his hands and as he did the food kept multiplying as he filled baskets and the disciples took the baskets and moved through the aisles to distribute food uh jesus fed the five thousand men plus the women and children again about twenty thousand people the other gospels tell us tell us that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and cross over the sea of galilee again moving now again towards capernaum while he went up on one of the mountains really a high bluff uh, that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. If you go online, you can see that these bluffs can be fairly high, fairly tall, between two and 3,000 feet. So he went up on one of these high bluffs, your Bible may say mountain, and uh, the, this bluff overlooked the sea. And John tells us that Jesus wanted to dismiss the multitudes quickly because their stomachs had been filled. <laughs> their stomachs had been filled with food, and they wanted to make him king if need be by force you see the people no doubt figured this is great all right we got to make this guy king he'll do this for us all the time we won't ever have to work again all right so we got to make this guy our king and so on and so forth uh, look <laughs> times may change in the sense of fashion and technology people remain the same okay i mean folks back then like today give them free food they'll vote for you all day long okay However, Jesus won't live in himself um, to being king of our stomachs. I mean, he's concerned about our stomachs. He made them. He's concerned that we have food to eat. He's concerned with the practical things of our lives. He doesn't want us to live on the level of the practical or the mundane. Uh, he said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, make that your priority, that you serve God, build his kingdom then everything else you need to live in the physical, he'll provide for you. He'll provide. And um, so Jesus won't be, he's concerned about our stomachs, but he won't be the Lord of our stomach. He wants to be the Lord of our heart, the king of our heart, and ultimately our lives. And he won't even be that unless we invite him in to take control. Now, the Gospels tell us, so we're kind of doing a composite with the different Gospels because uh, I think three out of the four record this story. But the Gospels tell us that not long after Jesus commended the disciples or commanded the disciples to get into the boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee again back towards Capernaum, uh, well, a, a tremendous storm hit, a tremendous storm hit. The question we need to ask ourselves is, did Jesus know the storm was coming? And I believe personally the answer to that was yes. Absolutely he knew the storm was coming. Which means, listen, he deliberately sent those disciples into the storm. But why? Why? Well, he had his reasons. In fact, all the storms that we face in the Christian life are designed by God to serve a purpose. And uh, this week and next we will look at what those purposes might be. But for the moment... You know, it's only important that we understand that they found themselves, and this is an important point. Right now, it's only important that we understand that these disciples found themselves in this storm because they were in the will of God and not outside the will of God. 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, Christians that are harboring into some pretty serious misconceptions. And one of those is that if you just do what's right and go to church and, you know, read your Bible and whatever, uh, you know, if you just do what God has said, then you're going to have, you know, clear skies and smooth sailing. But that's not really how it works, is it? Uh, Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation, talking to us as his disciples. And, um, you know, look, even if we are walking with the Lord, that doesn't mean we're going to be exempt from the storms of life, whatever those storms, uh, whatever they form they take. But I'll tell you this, I would rather be in the will of God and going through a severe storm than outside the will of God and going through one of these storms because of sin, okay? We're not guaranteed exemption from difficult times. But I'd rather go through difficult times knowing I was in obedience to God than to go through them knowing I had done something and disobeyed God and brought consequences upon my life. So, Jesus told his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee knowing that a storm was coming while he went up onto a mountain by himself. Now, we read that when the disciples got about halfway across, suddenly gale-like winds came out of nowhere. One author explains, he said, The Sea of Galilee lies just 600 feet below sea level uh, near the northern, and near the northern end of the sea. Well, actually, up in the area of Lebanon is Mount Hermon. Actually, that's where the Jordan begins. The headwaters are there, and uh, it flows down the Jordan Valley. But uh, at the base of Mount Hermon, you have the Jordan Rivers where they start. Uh, Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet high, and it gets very cold up there. In fact, there is snow up there uh, a good part of the year, all right, because it's so cold. The author says because you got uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is 600 feet below sea level, and is the Galilee Basin, which stays kind of warm, then you have the cold wind uh, rushing down often from uh, Mount Hermon down the Jordan Valley, and it collides with the warm water over the Galilee Basin. The author said uh, what happens is that the winds increase and uh, they hit the cliffs on the eastern shore. The winds swirl and twist, causing the waters beneath them to churn violently. The fact that they come quickly, these Wind storms come quickly with little warning makes the storms all the more dangerous and frightening, end quote. For what I understand, they can whip the waters of the Galilee up 15, 20 feet uh, waves. That's how strong these winds can get. And uh, so when the disciples got about halfway across the Sea of Galilee, here comes these gale-like winds out of nowhere, and um, the waves swelled. Matthew tells us they were tossed. The disciples were tossed by the waves. The Greek word is a word that means tortured or tormented. Guys, you have to understand, these were seasoned fishermen. <laughs> they had been on the Sea of Galilee hundreds, if not thousands of times. They had gone through many storms, but this one had them shook. This was a storm of storms. You have to understand that, okay? This was not just a little storm that they had been used to seeing. This one had them shook, okay? It really had them shook. And they were tormented, tortured by the waves, Matthew tells us. Now, look, I have to give the disciples some credit, okay? Since the wind was blowing against them, well, they could have stopped fighting the wind and just let it push the boat back to the place where they started. They could have said, look, this is just too much today. We can't cross the sea like this. 
And so, you know, they could have just stopped rowing, let the, uh, the, the wind, violent winds that was opposing them blow them right back to shore where they started, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They Instead, they fought the wind and kept on rowing. Why? Because their Lord gave them a command to go across the Sea of Galilee. And they were trying with all their hearts to obey what their Lord had commanded them to do. Guys, it's called perseverance, and that's a good thing. We, we fault these guys for a lot of things. <laughs> they did some boneheaded things. But, but here they were really trying to do the right thing, and I commend them for that, okay? Now, while the disciples were struggling on the sea, guess what? Jesus was up on the mountain. John tells us in verse 3 of chapter 6 that it was Passover time. Passover always took place at the time of the full moon, which meant there was a full moon out. Mark tells us that from where Jesus was sitting on the mountain, that he could see them struggling on the Sea of Galilee in the moonlight. You need to understand that this was not a rainstorm with clouds. It was a windstorm, which did not block out the the, uh, moonlight. Matthew tells us that Jesus was up on that mountain praying, no doubt, for them. So here are the disciples fighting for their lives out in the Sea of Galilee while Jesus was sitting up on the mountain watching the whole thing taking place. You say, well, it's kind of cruel, isn't it? Uh, No, no, it was uh, a test. Uh, It wasn't a cruel test, it was a control test. He had everything under control. The whole thing was taking place under the watchful, prayerful eyes of of Jesus. And guys, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what they were going through. He knew exactly how much they can endure. God always knows. God always knows exactly what we're going through, exactly what we can endure. Okay? Jesus knew it all. And just about the time they were giving up hope of coming through this storm alive, guess what? He comes walking to them on the water and rescued them. Look, to those who don't know God, there's a lot of critics of the Bible. They really don't know much, but they read a few things and they get real critical-hearted, unbelievers. And to those who don't know God, this incident seems at best like a meaningless experience for the disciples to have been put through. What's the purpose of this? So, And then others who are much more critical of God, uh, they say, well, this is just another example of this God of love and and the good God of love, quote-unquote, Another example of a, a cruel, sadistic God, which they believe is what he really is, uh, putting these poor disciples through uh, this storm for his own twisted amusement, simply for the enjoyment of watching these men struggle for their lives on the sea. And again, I say that because there are some folks that have that concept of God. They don't believe he's a good and kind and loving God. They believe they look at all the evil and injustice in the world, and they say, well, if God is so good, if he's so loving, why did he make a world like this? He didn't make that world. This is a world that man brought upon himself. God made a paradise for us to live in. God never intended man to get sick or to die. God never intended for there to be injustice and wars and famines and all the things that we live with on a daily basis around the world. This has all been brought upon the human race by man's rebellion. Now, God's going to fix it. Jesus, that's why Jesus came. First things first. Before he fixes the world, he's got to redeem those out of the world that want to spend eternity with him in a perfect world. And so that's what's coming. Until that time, we have to live in a fallen world. And it's manifestly wrong to look at this world, the result of man's sin, and to somehow use it to blame God. Manifestly wrong. 
So people that think that, you know, all of this out there, all this evil and all this injustice and kids being killed and deformities and so sickness, uh, it's all God's fault. No, it's all man's fault. We need to take responsibility for it, ask God for forgiveness and come to Christ and commit our lives to him. But you can always have people that have the warped, twisted view of God. And, um, but for those of us who are Christians, those of us who really believe in God, we know he's a God of love, a good God. And we know that there are no meaningless experiences in the Christian life, no matter how difficult they might be. Romans 8, 28, all things are working together uh, to those who look for good, to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So even if we can't understand everything we go through, and we're not going to, okay? But even if we can't understand what God is up to, as we go through these various trials and things, know this, when you don't understand what God is doing, fall back on what you do understand, that he's a good God, a loving God, who has our best interests at heart and is working for our eternity, our eternal best, not our temporal comfort. If God has to sacrifice a little temporal comfort to give us the best possible eternity, he'll do that in the way of gifts and uh, rewards and things for service. And all the trials he puts us through are to develop us for service. But what this incident does force us to do as believers is consider is to consider why God would send his people deliberately into storms. A storm could be any trial, tribulation, problem, painful circumstance that we find ourselves battling in life, kind of like these disciples were battling this storm in John 6, Matthew 14. Of course, in their case, it was a literal storm. In ours, it's metaphorical. But life is full of storms. Life is full of tragedy. Life is full of, of heartache and pain. See, too many of us as Christians, let's be honest, if we had our way, we would only choose blue skies and smooth sailing in life. We would opt out with, no, I don't want them storms, Lord. Just want those blue skies and those soft, wind, gentle winds and the smooth sailing. Because we're fair weather Christians, let's be honest. But as the old Arab proverb goes, all sunshine makes a desert. It's only through the storms of life that we grow and blossom in the Christian life. And there's no other way around it. So I'd like to divide this study into two parts. Today I'd like to look at a lesson in the perfection of faith. And next week, God willing, a look at the purpose of storms. So a lesson in the perfection of faith and then secondly, a look at the purpose of storm. So the first one, a lesson in the perfection of faith. Now, this morning I would like to have you turn to Matthew 14. Uh, that's the parallel passage, and Matthew records a lot more of this incident than does John. So I, we read John, and so you get a flavor of what's happening, but I want to turn over to Matthew 14, and uh, I want to develop this passage today. And the next week, we can glean some lessons uh, from why God would even send us into the storms as his uh, children, what, what he has in mind. Now, it's very important that we remember the, the details of this narrative. Even if, um, it's important we understand the details of this narrative if we're going to fully understand the lessons that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us through it. Okay, so let me just review again. Jesus sends his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee knowing a storm was coming. 
It was Passover time, which means it was there was a full moon out. Because again, Passover always happens at the time of the full moon. Jews were on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. Okay, uh, and being it was Passover time, there was enough light to see them struggling on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sitting on that mountain. Uh, if there had been, if this had been a thunderstorm. Uh, with clouds, it would have blocked out the moonlight. There wouldn't have been enough light for Jesus to look down from the mountain and see them there struggling on the Sea of Galilee. Now, as we said, while they were going through this storm, Jesus was up on the mountain watching and praying for them. It was a test, but it was a controlled test. It was all going on under his watchful eye, eyes. And uh, we're going to see that it was a test designed to perfect their faith in him look if you don't have to turn it but if you read matthew 8 you remember how that earlier jesus had tested them with a storm once before this time though he was in the boat remember he had ministered all day was exhausted so he was asleep in the boat and they hit this storm and he wasn't waking up and they feared for their lives then and they eventually uh, woke the lord and said lord don't you care that we're perishing and he said what are you talking about how can you die and i'm with you you know, do you realize that in all the gospel, there is not one example of anyone ever dying in the presence of Jesus? He's the Lord of life, right? <laughs> but uh, he had tested them back then. and But he was with them when that happened. Now he's testing them with another storm. This time, he's not with them physically. They were on their own. And he was stretching their faith further. Matthew 14, 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the water. Now look, uh, the night began at 6 p.m. That's when the, the night officially began in Jewish culture. The first watch would be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Second watch of the night, 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch, midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch would be 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Matthew tells us clearly that Jesus came walking to them in the fourth watch of the night, so sometime after 3 a.m. Now, by this time, and it's hard for me to imagine this, by this time, they had been struggling on that sea for at least six hours, probably more, okay? They were no doubt exhausted, probably seasick. Well, aren't these seasoned fishermen? Yeah, but when you go through this kind of a storm, even as a seasoned fisherman, and you're being rocked and tossed for all those hours, I think even a seasoned fisherman will have a little queasiness, uh, a little nausea, okay? So they were exhausted. They were uh, probably sick. Um, and no doubt that they felt like all was lost. They were going down. All was lost. When all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking toward them on the water. You know, often, guys, we feel like the Lord has deserted us. Now, when we go through some severe trial or problem or whatever, here's the problem. We feel. We feel like the Lord has deserted us. Look, feelings are great. We're not robots. God made us with feelings, right? It's okay to have feelings. It's not okay to let your feelings dictate your relationship with God or your perception of a situation you got to fall back on truth. you got to fall back on the Word of God. You can't leave. Satan will manipulate your feelings all day long. He'll get you looking at circumstances and problems and trials and get you to thinking, well, God can't be so good. He can't be a loving God. He's not with me. If he was, why would I be going through this? 
Was he with the disciples? Not physically, technically. He was there. He saw what was going on. He, he told them to cross the Sea of Galilee, purposely sending him into the storm. But we often feel that God has abandoned us. But what does the word of God say? The writer of the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. He promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. I'm sure the disciples were thinking as they were rowing on the sea for all those hours. I'm sure it must have crossed one of their minds, probably all their minds. Of all the time. For Jesus not to be with us, you know? Well, if, if he was here, he, would, he could save us. He could, he could calm the storm like he did last time. Oh, my goodness. If we're done. We're, we're dead. But if he was only here, it would be different. He's always with us. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In the Psalms, David complained often. That God seemed far away and unconcerned in the darkest moments of his life. But then he always stopped himself, right? As you read the Psalms, he always stopped himself and said, but basically he'd say something like, but I know he's with me and I know he is going to ultimately rescue me. I know it by faith. He felt that God had abandoned him, but he knew by faith that wasn't true. That's what we have to do. Don't the devil manipulate your feelings. You go to the Word of God, you find out what God has said about these things. Jesus always comes to us in the storms of life. That's one of the lessons of this story. Jesus always comes to us in the storms of life. He said in Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And again, the waters could be any trial, any circumstance, any storm. Guys, he usually doesn't come, though, (laughs) at an hour or a time when we think he should come, right? Or when it's convenient for us. He comes to us when we have come to the end of ourselves. The perfect time when we need him the most. I mean, he waited until the ship was as far from land as possible. If it was right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, it was as far from land on all sides as possible, right? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about going forward or backward, okay? And this, the lake is, you know, 15 miles long, so obviously they were way far away from the southern shore. But I'm saying if you're going, uh, you know, uh, going west from the east, uh, they were right in the middle. They were as far from land as they could possibly be on those two sides, east and west. Um, he waited for them to get into the middle of the lake so that all human hope in themselves was gone. And again, guys, once again, he was uh, testing the disciples' faith. You know, the Lord wants to build our faith, not our resourcefulness, not our um, hope or uh, reliance in ourselves. God wants to build our faith in him, and he can only do that when he brings us to the end of ourselves like when he brought Israel uh, into a trap where you had the Red Sea in front of you, mountains on either side, the Egyptian army coming from behind. He forced the people of Israel into a trap because if he didn't, they would have scattered in every direction. And they had to stand still and see the power of their God to deliver. 
Sometimes God puts our back up against the wall. Sometimes he lead us, leads us into a storm that has us boxed in. And, and anywhere we turn, we just can't figure our way out. And we're forced to pray. We're forced to trust him. And he does that because if we, he didn't do it once in a while, we wouldn't trust him. We'd figure out every way possible to get, get around this thing. We'd pull an Abraham, create a lot of Ishmaels, okay? And that's, a, that's a problem. But God wants to build our faith, not our resourcefulness. Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Why did Jesus walk on the water? Why didn't he just materialize in the boat? Well, you know, like the Star Trek, beam, beam me aboard, Scotty. Why, why didn't he just materialize in the boat? Why did he walk to them on the water? To show the disciples that the very thing they feared at that moment to see was nothing more than a bridge for him to come to them on. If you look at trials adversity as opportunities for God to come to you. Using the very trial as a bridge to bridge the gap between you and him, you're going to look at trials a little differently. You're going to look at tribulation and um, different storms of life. You're going to look at these things differently. If you imagine yourself saying, Lord, this is a pretty severe storm I'm going through, but I expect to see you in it. I expect you to come to me and uh, show me what I'm to do or uh, bring me through it or, or, or fix the problem. Often we fear the difficult experiences of life, and I understand why, you know, such as sickness, financial hardship, bereavement, I don't know, whatever it is. We fear these things. We try to escape them. We, we, we don't want to deal with them. But when they come upon us, we have to realize that God allows them only for us to discover that these experiences bring the Lord closer to us than we ever thought possible. Storms are beneficial. I'm not saying we enjoy the thought of them. They're beneficial. They bring us closer to the Lord or bring him closer to us. I was telling first service about one of the guys attending our church. His name is Joe. Some of you know Joe. And um, Joe's got a lot of physical problems because uh, five years ago, uh, he was working uh, on a, an electrical junction box uh, that fed uh, 11 or 12 buildings, each having then a separate box for the building, but this was the main box. And I forgot how many volts uh, and amps, uh, a lot. And he had the panel off. He was telling me this. I was driving him to men's Bible study a couple weeks ago. And uh, I had heard the story, but I forgot the details. I said, Joe, could you please explain to me again what happened? He said, I'll make a long story short. He said, uh, so he's working on this, on this panel, had the cover off, and he was using a big wrench. And he dropped it. And it hit perfectly the three main terminals and blew the thing up. It knocked him 25 feet back and moved his brain stem nine degrees. It was such a powerful explosion. He should have died. After he woke up in the hospital and after rehab, and he still deals with a lot, you can pray for Joe, he still deals with a lot of physical issues. He's not here today, but 
Uh, he'll be back. But um, he told me, Phil, I was a Christian when that happened. But yet I wasn't living for the Lord. So money, money, money. I was working 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours a week making money. My marriage was falling apart. I didn't know my kids, you know. Yet I knew the Lord, but I wasn't going to church, really. I could, didn't have time. He said, after this experience, can I just say after he went through the storm, he said, I'm a changed man. He said, I thank God for what happened. It brought me closer to him than I've ever experienced in my life. Storms can be rough, depending on how severe they are. But I'm telling you, God will use them to reveal himself to you, to draw you close to him in a way you never thought possible. Matthew 14, verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! <laughs> and they cried out for fear. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Because they weren't looking for him. They weren't looking for him. Why don't you and I recognize Jesus when he comes in the form of a person that God has sent a Christian to minister to us or to help us. And, you know, we just, either we're feeling sorry for ourselves and we send him away. I mean, Jesus comes to us in all kinds of ways. Here, they didn't expect him. Apparently, they felt like because he wasn't there physically like last time, there's nothing he could do for them. What a concept of God that is. And, and because of that concept of God, there are many people who are churchgoers who believe that they have to be in God's presence all the time. Otherwise, God won't answer their prayers or bless their lives. So they go to church a lot because that's where God lives, they believe. Or they wear some kind of a, a medal with a picture of Jesus on it or the, a cross. Or they have a statue of him on their dresser to bless their home because he's got to be there. They don't realize if you're a true Christian, you've invited him into your heart and he lives inside of you. You can't get closer than that. But a lot of times people don't have that kind of relationship. Their faith is not developed to that point. Look, had they been waiting for the Lord, had they, had they started thinking like spiritual men, because he's trying to build into them now, they're taking over the ministry in a year. If they had been thinking like spiritual men, they would have thought, Jesus told us to cross over. We can't do that. Physically, humanly, it's impossible. And we feel like we're going to die. So Jesus told us to cross over. We're not going under, but we need him here. Let's look for Jesus. Let's, let's you know, expect him to come and, and rescue us. They didn't think like that. They didn't think like that. Instead, their lack of faith led to some false conclusions that um, when he finally came to them, it was a ghost. You know? They weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for a ghost, I guess. I don't know. Fear caused them to think irrationally, to, to perceive the situation completely opposite to what it was. Here, Jesus was coming to them to fix the problem, and they thought a ghost, a demon, was coming to wipe them out. We have to understand that, you know, we have to see things through the eyes of faith, not the eyes of flesh. We talked about that last week. You can get the CD or the go online. So often we look at our situation through the eyes of flesh. And we say, alas, we've had it. We're done. We're goners. Instead of looking at things through the eyes of faith, 
hey, God's with us. He told us to go over. We're not going under. We know that. Guys, fear and faith. Fear and faith cannot coexist in the same heart simultaneously because fear always blinds us, always blinds our eyes to the presence of the Lord. They can't, they're mutually exclusive. Where there is fear, it will blind your eyes to the presence of the Lord in all, situ all the situations we face. Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. You know what he said in the Greek? The Greek is literally, Be of good cheer, I am. Do not be afraid. Guys, remember, what are you afraid of? You remember me? The great I am? Moses, go and tell Pharaoh that I'm sending you to let my people go. Lord, I don't even know your name. You tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. I am, the name of God. Ego me in the Greek. The great I am. Here, these guys are terrified. Jesus comes and says, cheer up, guys. What are you so worried about? What are you afraid of? Remember me, the great I am? I've got everything under control. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, there have been people that have uh, put Peter down for this. You know? Oh, impetuous Peter. Always acting presumptuously, Right? And certainly we need to be careful that we don't act presumptuously and call it faith. Like I was telling first service, there's a pastor in the area here, and his church was doing well, it was growing at about 400 people, but he decided, I think he subscribed to the If You Build It, They Will Come philosophy of ministry, and so he decided that he was going to take a large loan out to buy an $11 million sports complex that had closed down. Well, he did, because after all, we got to let people know God's with us. we got to show them through a big building that he's got his hand in us. We are really being used by the Holy Spirit. Well, he bankrupted his church. Because that's presumption. That's not faith. Now look, if we believe God wants us to trust him for an $11 million building, and we fast, and we pray, and we seek the Lord, and we're all convinced he's telling us to take a step in faith, let's do it. I'm all for taking steps of faith where the Lord's in it. We have to be careful that we don't presume. We pastors are good for that. Presume. You know, because we, a lot of guys, it's an ego thing. The size of their ministry is tied to their ego. So whatever they're going to need to do, we've got to build this, we've got to make this grow. And so on. That's a different message. But I just wanted to, you know, look, the Lord never encourages presumption in our walk with Him. Never. That's sin. That's pride. And yet here he encourages Peter to come to him on the water. Guys, the Lord will always encourage a genuine step of faith. This was a genuine step of faith. Verse 30, But when he saw, Peter, that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Quick prayer. You don't need to pray often long prayers. I mean, just, you know, Lord, save me. That was a good one. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I don't think the Lord, reproved, I don't think the Lord was, was cross or angry with Peter. I don't think he was stern. Okay, I think he was gentle. I think, he was, I think it was a loving rebuke. 
Because the Lord wants to encourage steps of faith. And if we take a step and then we fall, doesn't a child learn to walk by falling once in a while? Do your parents, when you're teaching your two-year-old to walk or your one-year-old, and the, and the little thing fell, did you berate them? Now, why did you fall? You, you, oh, come on, come on, pick him up and you're loving him. I, I'm convinced Jesus was lovingly kind of reproving Peter. Peter, what happened? You know, why, why did you sink, Peter? I want to hear it from you. What, what made, you started out so well. You had your eyes on me. You were doing the impossible. The power of the Spirit was upon you, and suddenly you sank. Why do you think that happened, Peter? I think the Lord does that with all of us. Our Christian life consists of a series of, of tests designed to stretch our faith. And when we step out in faith and we fall, the Lord uses the opportunity to sit us down and basically say things like into our hearts, okay, you know, what do you think went wrong? <laughs> you were doing good for a while. You were walking by faith. My power was upon you, and, but then you fell down. What do you think happened? Well, it's obvious what happened with Peter. He took his eyes off of the Lord and got him onto his circumstances. We see it here. The waves were, the waves were pretty high and the wind was, was strong, boisterous, right? And Peter, at one point, as he's walking to the Lord and, is, and, and all around him, things are going crazy. I mean, waves are breaking and, and, and the wind is blowing and he's got his eyes on Jesus. As long as he's walking with his eyes on Jesus, he's doing the impossible. He's walking on water, right? But let's be honest, Peter was a human being like us. And I'm thinking at one point he starts looking around going, what am I doing? I can't walk on water. And he began to, look, he looked at the size of the waves and the impossible situation he was in, he began to sink. And that's when he cried, Lord, save me. And the Lord lifts him up. No doubt has a nice talk with him later on in the boat. Okay, all right, let's go through this, Peter, right, one more time. What do you think this happened? You know, keep your eyes on me. You'll be fine. Don't get your eyes on the circumstances. That's the same reason all of us fail, by the way, guys, as Christians, when we start stepping out in faith and we do well for a while, and maybe it's with a ministry or maybe it's something else or maybe it's a, uh, a bad habit that you haven't been able to break, uh, cigarettes or alcohol or drugs of some kind. It's a storm and it's got you really beaten down. And, and, and so by faith, you take a step. Because uh, the Lord has told you, come to me. I don't want you bound by that junk. Come to me. And you start walking towards the Lord, and you're feeling like you've been set free. But then, you know, all of a sudden, but I need that. I can't go without that. You know, and you start looking at the circumstance. And that's when you begin to sink. The Lord said, keep your eyes on me. I'm, I'm going to, I'll deliver you. But keep your eyes on me, right? I mean, for a while, everything is going great. When we start taking steps of faith, but again, take your eyes off of Jesus. You look at the enormity, the impossibility of the situation, you begin to sink. It bears repeating, guys, fear and faith cannot coexist in the same heart at the same time. Either fear will dispel our faith or faith will dispel our fear. And so Jesus said to Peter, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You had a little faith. You were able to start, but you weren't able to finish. Guys, look, at, again, we, we often kind of pick on Peter, you know, and, and a lot of people like to kind of put Peter down. And, and when it comes to this story, I've, I've heard it, I've seen it, okay, where people have done that, commentators, and so on. 
they say, well, Peter only had a little faith. And why, did he, why did he only have a little faith? Hey, you know what? A little faith is better than no faith. A little faith is better than no faith, which is what the other disciples were manifesting, no faith. At least Peter was willing, at least he was willing to attempt the impossible and to step out in faith. And because of it, for a little while at least, he experienced what it was like to walk on water. He experienced what it was like to do the impossible by God's grace. That's more than can be said for the other 11 apostles who stayed in the boat and played it safe. One pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, All of us are would-be water walkers. And God did not intend for his children created in his divine image to go through life in a desperate attempt to avoid failure. The boat is safe. The boat is secure. The boat is comfortable. The water is high. The waves are rough. The wind is strong and the night is dark. A storm is out there. And if you get, your, if you get out of the boat, you may sink. But if you don't get out of your boat, you will never walk because if you want to walk on water, you're going to have to get out of the boat. There is something, in fact, someone inside of us that tells us our lives are about something more than sitting in the boat, something that wants to walk on water, something that calls us to leave the routine of comfortable existence and abandon ourselves in this adventure of following Christ, end quote. Verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Guys, the whole experience strengthened their faith by elevating their awareness of who Jesus really was. I'm not sure. It seems like at this point, they finally come to terms with regard to who he really was. And as their understanding of his person and awesome power was expanded, the result was their faith and their worship was deepened. There is no other way for us to draw close to God and know him in a deeper way unless we allow him to put us through the storms of life where we have to trust him to come to our rescue at one point and work out an impossible situation. In the storm recorded in Matthew chapter 8, when he calmed that storm, here's what the disciples said to them, to him. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? But now they said to him, Truly, you are the Son of God. So their faith was deepening. And it was the storms that were causing their faith to be deepened. Guys, the Christian life, and we're done, but the Christian life, like walking on water, is humanly impossible. Can I say that again? The Christian life, just like walking on water, is humanly impossible impossible it can only be lived in the power of the holy spirit through faith peter could walk on the water because he had faith in jesus word remember matthew 14 29 well lord if it's really you let me come out to you on the water and what did jesus say one word come come faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. When you are acting according to God's word, you are unseekable. You are unstoppable. You are invincible because you cannot be killed 
by the devil or anyone or anything else until God says, your time on this earth is done. Come up here. Until that time, I don't care what you're going through. The Lord is with you. The Lord sees everything. He understands what you're going through. He sees and knows what you can endure. And in the right time, a time when you think it's the hope, it's all, Lord, you had your chance. Now, if you, had, if you had stepped in earlier, this situation could have been solved easily. But look, you, you took your time, now it's hopeless. You're right. Yeah, right. I'm thinking Martha and Mary were thinking of that about his, their brother Lazarus, right? You had your chance, Lord. Guy's dead. You would have come, you could have healed the guy. Would have, now he's dead, it's hopeless. No. No, it's not. We'll get there eventually. Um, it, it was when Peter forgot the source of his miraculous ability. By not looking unto Jesus any longer, he began to sink. Guys, as long as we keep our eyes upon Jesus, keep trusting in his word, keep relying in his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do the impossible for God. But the minute we become occupied <laughs> with ourselves or our circumstances take our eyes off of the Lord, we'll begin to sink. We'll begin to sink. The more we focus on our problems, the bigger they become. You realize that? Somebody has said you can, I don't know, how many miles in diameter is the, moon, is the sun? A lot of, millions and millions of miles in diameter. Big, right? The sun. But you can block something as big as the sun out with something as small as your hand if you just keep it close enough to your eyes. When we let our problems get so close to us, it blocks out all objectivity. We can't see the sun anymore. S-U-N, excuse me, S-O-N. Can't see the sun anymore. And now we're, we're, we're thinking the worst. We're panicking, right? We begin to sink, sink into fear and depression. When it comes to serving God, guys, let me just say this. It's easier to stay in the boat, isn't it? And the boat, of course, is your safety of your houses, the walls of your church. It, it's easier to send money to missionaries than to become a missionary. It's, it's easier to pray for somebody who's walking on water in some ministry than it is to join them in that ministry, right? But Jesus wants to build our faith by bidding us to get out of our comfort zones, trust his word, and take a step of faith. I was talking to one of our guys this last week, and uh, he had heard about our evangelism team going out every other week for a long time, and he kind of had a burden, but he was scared. Scary to go out in the streets and just talk to people about Jesus, right? But uh, he was afraid, so he stayed back. He prayed, no doubt, for the team. But then one day, the Lord really impressed upon us, you need to step out of your comfort zone, okay? I'm not saying the Lord used the language you're using today, okay? Uh, step out of the boat, I'm not saying he did, but that's what the Lord was saying to him, okay? Time to get out of your comfort zone. So he showed up one week and said, well, I'm not going to talk, though. I'm just going to stand by you guys while you talk, and I'll just pray. Well, after a while, he began to throw a few comments in. And now he's leading people to do evangelism himself. He got out of his comfort zone. He stepped out of the boat onto what in his mind was to be an impossible situation for him and his own strength. And as he willed to obey God's will and took a step in faith, God gave him everything he needed to obey God's will.
And now he's leading people to Christ. You should hear some of the stories. All because he decided, look, I'm tired of sitting in the boat and watching others walk on water. I want to be used by God. I want to see what God can do through me, right? Comfortable Christianity is safe, but it's not very exciting, fulfilling, or fruitful. Again, guys, get out of your boat, out of your comfort zone, and see what God's going to do this year. We need you to step out of your comfort zone because we are in a transitional period as a church. We need everybody to step up and say, look, I can help in this ministry. I can, I can come over here and give you a hand over here. Will you please come up to me afterwards? Uh, if you'd like to help us out with these ministries, we, we need your help. And I just want to end with one more quote because I know, there's, I know there are some folks here this morning who are going through a terrible storm of whatever kind. Okay, and um, one author put it this way. I thought it was good, and we'll close. He said, are you going through the storms of life now? Well, he sees. Believe that. Rest in it. Appropriate it. Rejoice that understanding helps. Excuse me. Rejoice that understanding help is on the way. Help was on the way for the disciples long before they saw it. And the same is true for you. As the saying we like to, the checks in the mail, right? Well, it might not be a check, but the Lord's, he's working, okay? Are you surrounded by darkness? Do you wonder if there is a way out? Keep expecting him to come because he often comes in the fourth watch when we're exhausted, our strength is gone, and we're about to give up. He said, be open to the hand of God in your life. Focus the gaze of your faith upon him, end quote. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have placed these real-life stories, historical events, in your word, because they also have many spiritual principles and lessons attached to them, lessons we need to learn. We're going to have our faith increased, and we're going to be used by you in greater ways for your glory. So, Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. Give us grace to glean these Oh, to, to, to dig up from your word the, the gold uh, nuggets that you've placed here for our learning. Give us grace, Lord, uh, to not be comfortable in the boat any longer, but by your strength to step out uh, and to be used by you in ways that go way beyond us. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.